0: Well, hey everyone. My name is Logan, and you're listening to LV's Music Corner. On this episode of LV's Music Corner, I'm joined by Hugh Taylor. Hugh Taylor is the youngest brother of James, Alex, Kate, and Livingston Taylor. Hugh has performed on several of his siblings' albums and has released his own album, which is called It's Up To You. Hugh currently runs the Outermost Inn, which is located on Martha's Vineyard. Stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Hugh Taylor on LV's Music Corner. Hey, Hugh, it's Logan. How we doing?
1: Hey, Logan. I'm good. I'm good. Yes, yeah, expecting your call here. I'm just getting a little office work done while I tried to be punctual here how's everything going
0: it's good uh how have you been
1: good you know we've had a real busy season here you know this uh this covid thing is really sort of uh landed in our lap with a lot of uh well it's opened up a lot of it's opened our eyes to a lot of stuff that we can do here that we never thought we could do before so it's it's uh, gotten pretty good you know we and we didn't, you know, hell, starting in March, we didn't know what we were going to be, you know, we, we don't open here till mid-May usually, and, and uh, you know, in February and March we're doing our hiring and organizing our kitchen staff and make, you know, those are the people that we need to make sort of longer-term commitments to some of the weights most of the wait staff is right here on the vineyard, and our good friends of ours have, have worked for, for us and with us for years, so, but we, you know, we're always, you know, changing up the kitchen, <clears throat> uh, same chef we've had for a number of years, but. Uh, so anyway, but we just didn't know whether to commit to anybody, you know, getting, hiring people to, uh, uh, to help him out and stuff. So, um, and because we, we just didn't know if we are going to be able to open. And then the governor, when we got home, and you know, from the Bahamas where we spent a lot of our winter, they, you know, actually we were kind of uh, we were stuck down there, in, in you know, sort of because uh, there wasn't any way to get out of the country. They shut off all the commercial traffic and everything. But anyway, so we we um, we got home, and then about three weeks into it, the governor said. Uh, he he'd let us do outside dining so we 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 just sort of geared up for that and and uh because we have all this outside space here I and mean, hell it, it just absolutely took off
0: that's good i mean yeah. i've seen i've seen some of the pictures on uh on facebook and stuff of the views from the restaurant and uh-huh. and they're they're breathtaking
1: yeah it's it's a great spot you know my folks uh, bought this land a long time ago and gave Jeannie and i a piece of it and and um, you know, we had no idea we'd be doing this business for 30 years, or you know, 20 years later. But we, there we were. Um, and uh, yeah, but the, but because not most of our competitors, or you know, our fellow restaurateurs around here, we don't, know, we don't consider each other competitors. But we, but they were all closed because none of them could do the outside dining that we had. They don't have the space, you know, or or so we we we, you know, God, we turned away twice as many people as we could actually take every night. So quite something but uh, you know now that we know this outside dining you know covid or no covid uh, outside dining is now something i'm quite certain everybody's going to want to do they love that out there so um you know for for all the covid reasons but but for the rest too so we we're just gearing up to try to make that uh, you know better that as we go forward next year you know
0: absolutely Well, for folks that don't know who Hugh Taylor is, he is the youngest sibling of James, Alex, Livingston, and Kate Taylor. And he's here with me today, and he has worked on several albums, including his own sibling stuff to Jimmy Buffett albums and his own album called It's Up To You. So, Hugh, I kind of want to rewind the clock a little bit and talk about the Taylor household. So, all five of you guys are six or seven years apart.
1: That's right. The bunch of us uh, uh, in total are, I think, just a little bit over five years um, apart. Wow. I mean, my brother, uh, yeah, my oldest brother, Alex. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, it's nice to talk to you, Logan. Thanks for having me on. Um, and it's nice to visit with you again. Um, yeah, I think my oldest brother, Alex, was, was five years older than me. He he passed at, uh, about 20 years ago now, but he, he uh, and I don't know, I guess they call those Irish twins when, when, uh, when the kids are born less than nine months apart, or just about nine months apart. But anyway, uh, we, yeah, we're all a very, you know, in those days growing up as a kid, you know, of course, I somebody five years older than you was like an adult compared to you were. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But as we got older, um, you know, we we you know became um, contemporaries and and uh, you know and, and admirers and supporters of one another. So so uh, that I guess to a certain extent that that tight knit clustering of birthdays is has always worked out to be a good thing.
0: Yeah. So talk about mom and dad a little bit.
1: Well, um, my father was a. Uh, you know tall, sort of engaging and striking fellow he was handsome, bald since he was eighteen years old and and but handsome in it, and a very kind of dynamic and charismatic fellow southern accent you know from the foothills of the blue Ridge mountains in north carolina uh, he went he was driven uh, uh quite hard by his ambitions and his desire to achieve, and so he he was an ex, excelling student uh, all through his studies and career as a student and ended up at Mass General out of Harvard Medical School, and where in the 40s he met my mother, who was the daughter of a fisherman from Newburyport, Massachusetts, at the border of the uh, uh, state of New Hampshire, right on the mouth of the Merrimack River. They couldn't have been from more different places my father a southern democrat my mother a northern republican but she was a uh, incredibly open-minded um kind of free spirit in the city of boston in those days as a college student on a in a little school on newbury street and they met at a party somewhere someone invited the, both of them to the same party and they would occasionally go to the vineyard with their pals while they were living up there and a the little bit of time my father had but so they they married, and he did his his re, uh, residency and internship at Mass General, and and all of my siblings were born in the Boston area where they lived as uh, as a married couple in their you know in their early okay so I guess I would say mid to late twenties I guess you were at that time, and and they moved to North Carolina because my father wanted to practice medicine down there and and be part of the fledgling medical school staff. at UNC, Chapel Hill, and so they moved to Chapel Hill uh, with me and my mother's belly, and I was born there, and then we all lived a nice little tight grouping in this marvelous environment we had in Chapel Hill that my mother and father built back in, the I guess, the early 50s, 1954. I guess we moved into that house.
0: Wow. So... You you guys moved from Boston to North Carolina, and and I'm sure, you know, for the older siblings, they they might you know kind of remember some of those differences from Boston up in the north and North Carolina down down south, obviously. But were were you guys as kids kind of ornery and and pull tricks on mom and dad, or or were you guys you know kind of uh, you know perfect? Yes sir. Yes ma'am, kind of kids.
1: Yeah, no our house wasn't uh didn't have a lot of uh structure in terms of discipline and stuff like that in it. My father was uh was could be intimidating and and and, and an impressive disciplinary if he wanted to be, but it, we never uh suffered you know by a very strict household. You know, the my mother and father designed and built this uh sort of Frank Lloyd Wright-esque house in Chapel Hill that we moved into. And, and the architecture of that house and reflected sort of the architecture of of our upbringing, too, which was, you know, it was opened and, you know, the house had tons of glass in it. Every bedroom in the building had its own outside slider going outside. So, you know, we were free to come and go pretty much at will. Um, they were never exceedingly... Uh, you know uh overseeing as they looked at our schoolwork and stuff like that although you know they were certainly supportive of it there was a lot of uh, arts in our upbringing music particularly and also books uh, we were read to a lot before we could read and then and then encouraged to read books ourselves so there's quite a lot of that sort of more liberal arts kind of uh bent to it i suppose my father wished that all of us would become doctors or Something and my mother probably wished we'd all become politicians. But anyway, they um, they, were, they never sort of uh, pushed us with any sort of ambitions that they they might hope to see us achieve somehow. You know, so it was all it was all a pretty open structure. And of course, we got into tons of trouble, you know, over all of our uh, lifetime down there in Chapel Hill. But we we were sort of our own little family structure. We lived at the end of a private little road that no one came down and. We, there were four of us boys and we always were doing something, building go-karts or making wooden Tommy guns out of scroll saws, you know, and pieces of pine. And We, you know, we we had a good time. We really did. And I, I learned an awful lot of, in a mechanical sense. I learned an awful lot from my siblings. Probably I applied it more than any of them did as they, as they went into music and stuff more than I did. But you know, I, we we were ha- very very hands on, as was our father. Really, as he took on his little craft projects, he built a boat down there, and he was always tinkering around the place, and and most of the time frustrated that we'd taken his tools and left them where they weren't supposed to be. So, but in general, you know, we we had a nice, you know, sort of self encapsuled, you know, kind of lifestyle down there. It was really great, lots of space to run around in. We played softball and rollerball we called it in the driveway and basketball and and we roller skated and bicycled around the neighborhood that was really we knew everyone in the neighborhood i suppose if you wanted to hear about hijinks you would probably have to ask one of the neighbors but i suppose most of them are gone by now
0: gotcha so you are growing up in in this house Um, what kind of music are you listening to
1: well, my folks, you know, had the, the Victrola, they called it, and they they played uh, a lot of show tunes. There was, you know, Porgy and Beth, there was a lot of Cole Porter, a lot of, you know, all, Rogers and Hammerstein, all all, all the sort of uh, contemporary show tune records. There was a lot of classical music, most of which I can't remember the names of, but I, I certainly am familiar with the sounds when I hear them on the classical radio station occasionally in the car. And... uh and they were comedy records, uh, Nichols and May, and uh, the you know the jo- satire records, the, uh, Lenny Bruce, Bill Cosby, you know the, all the sort of uh, beatnik comics of the of the era. And then uh, as folk came into play, uh, there was a lot of the. Uh, uh, what would I call it? the four freshmen, and there was Peter Paul and Mary, and and Pete Seeger, a lot of that stuff, and 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 a lot of uh, traditional uh, black southern music. Uh, I'd say some gospel, but mostly uh, blues, and and just uh, you know the the music of of the South, basically, you know, which of course was coming mostly out of black hands and mouths.
0: Yeah and and these records who was it that was buying the records in the house at the time was it more so mom or more so dad
1: i'd say the two of them might shop together like that uh i suppose my mother was probably more into the music side of it and my father more into the sort of the um the the comedy and that sort of stuff but uh, they both trusted each other's taste in music i um, Quite sure because my father enjoyed singing along with all the records that were in the building at the time and that was the way it was up until the time that alex my oldest brother became a young teenager and then he started buying his own records and that we didn't listen to them on the family uh uh, stereo but out in the, the little house that was outside in the driveway that where alex and james lived and uh with the separate bedrooms out there and um As they became teenagers, our folks built that little spot for them to live in, and it had a practice room in it, a piano in it, and a stereo in there. And my brother Alex, you know, was beginning to get really into R&B at that time. You know, the fledgling R&B as it came out of, you know, gospel and Christian music and turned into, you know, into you know, Ike & Tina Turner and Ray Charles and the Coasters and Drifters and you know, early Atlantic records stuff. And, you know, and we jumped on Aretha you know, Franklin and Otis when they came barreling along, you know, just all that sort of stuff. And Alex was so, sort of the one that gave us our our true interest in r and I'm Pretty sure we, we'd all would think that. In fact, he was the first person in the state of North Carolina, I'm quite certain, to have a Beatles record.
0: <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah.
1: And we, you know, he was very generous with that. We out, we overplayed that record in the house, and then we lent it to all our friends. And, you know, it, it got passed around the community for about three months before uh, anybody else was uh, able to purchase it. I don't know where he found it, but he, he got it somewhere. He, At the time, Alex was, uh, you know, was doing a little bit of singing in studios, and he might have got it from one of these local recording producers that, uh, you know, was working on a little... Little houses around Chapel Hill and down in Durham and Raleigh area,
0: yeah, that is hilarious. let yeah. me ask you this Hugh uh mom and dad both had musical talents uh am I correct with that?
1: yeah, you know, my mother was a trained singer she was at uh the New England conservatory uh when my when they met and uh and aspired really to be a singer um you know a pop singer of the day she her you know she emulated uh, uh, Julie. Uh, Judy Garland, you know, and and you know, in my mind, sounded just like her and just as annoying, you know. When I was nine years old, walking beside her in the grocery store, but but the uh, uh, but my father probably had as much, you know, you know, innate musical talent. He, you know, he just sang around the house and he played the harmonica and loved to sing along with whatever was coming out of the stereo. But uh, so they were both, yeah, they were both. They could both carry a tune, that's what I should say. And, uh, and, and of course, that all rubbed off on all of us because we were born with that sort of lazy man's instrument, which is the voice. And we're able to, you know, communicate through music right, right from the get-go, all of us.
0: I see. When uh, was your first sort of memory of singing, you know, whether that be around the house or, you know, doing yard work or, or anything like that?
1: well i guess for 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 our purposes, I guess around the house there's for the most part my my first remembrance of singing were was just singing jingles that were coming off of the off of the t v or the radio uh there was a uh chewing tobacco company called uh, Tube Rose, and they had an ad that we used to sing all the time and of course, we just emulate our father who would sing all kind of stuff around the property you know when he's tinkering around but that tubros ad was if you're snuffed too strong it's wrong get two bros mild tubros. you'll feel much better all day long with two bros mild two bros so that was i don't know but you know that kind of stuff jingles like that there was a local jingle for a a uh, uh pickled jerusalem artichoke which we had no idea what it was but we were fascinated by that jingle which i can't i can no longer remember but that was one. So I guess maybe that. And then, and then of course, all of the records that we, you know, Porgy and Bess was a biggie in our family. And, you know, the songs that came out of that, you know, my mama done told me when I was in knee pants, you know, that song and summertime and, you know, all the marvelous stuff that was coming out of there was, was ingrained in us early on.
0: Gotcha. So when did you sort of form your first band?
1: Well, my brothers were singing, you know, in, in a high school band early on, you know, in their first year of high school, I guess that was ninth or 10th grade. I can't remember what, how many, I think it were in four grades in high school back then. And, uh, and of course I, I could sing too. I was a singer, you know, I never was a player. I, you know, I play a little bit, you know, the money chords that live calls them, but, uh, but I, I was never really a player. I was too undisciplined and too distracted with all sorts of other things to actually put the time into it that that's necessary to become a good player. But and I was more extroverted than my siblings, so I you know I, I had a bigger social life than some of them. But uh, I had a band when I was in the sixth grade. You know we were you know we played around town. We played in, in at you know in the rec halls and the 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 uh, church. Uh, socials and stuff like that you know playing all the songs of the day uh, you know uh, my friends had you know different well as we got older we got better equipment and stuff but we'd plug a microphone and a guitar into the speaker driven guitar case of a of a Sears earlbuck guitar and, and that was what, how we started out i think in the fifth or the sixth grade we we were young and and um you know, just uh, having a good time with it, and these guys—you know, these guys who were players and becoming good players. Some of them are are still good friends of mine, though I don't see them very often. They—they're a lot of them are actually excellent, excellent players today. They—they, um, 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 they, you know, were gracious enough to bring me into the fold because because I could sing, basically, and uh, they liked that. And we did a lot of playing around Chapel Hill. Uh, you know, the entertainment directors of, of these frat houses around Chapel Hill, you know, we thought those guys were all big adults and everything, all these college kids that were, now I look back on them as youngsters, kids, but, but, you know, at 18, 19 years old, we thought they were, you know, the, the ups and they, they would, uh, they have, you know, drinking parties and dancing parties all week long, you know, at these places, but, and then they'd hire, you know, live music on the weekends to play in the backyards of these frat houses and but they got tired of the playlist and the jukeboxes, so they would hire us. And I frequently, um, in my early years, was playing at a, at, in the backyard of a frat house, when, or in the basement of a frat house on a weeknight when my folks thought I was over in some friend of mine's house playing in their garage practicing, when in fact we were actually out, um, you know, playing music for a bunch of um, homesick college kids.
0: <laughs> I see. So at at this point in time, you know, you're you're still in high school, or you probably just got out of high school. When James is off doing his thing for Apple, and Kate's getting her career started with Warner Brothers, and Alex and Livingston, they're off at at Capricorn. Were you ever wondering early on, you know, where's where's my piece of the puzzle in in the music business?
1: um You know, it's funny, I I. Uh, they, I was sort of the last one left at home. You know, Alex had married his wife Brent, and they had a little baby, and they were living in Atlanta. And um, my brother Livingston was in a boarding school in Pennsylvania. My sister Kate was in a boarding school in in uh, Cambridge, Mass. And and James had had just come out of Milton Academy in Boston. Uh, and when I so I was the last one in in town, and all I really wanted to do was get out of the house. My mom and dad were kind of at that stage; were, their marriage was coming apart, and they had they didn't really have much time for me. And as soon as I got my driver's license at 15 and a half, I I left town. I quit school and left Chapel Hill. I was I was scheduled to graduate a, a year or two early because I I I made up a lot of class time by going to summer schools because I wanted to get out of school quicker. And I I ended up stopping. In my last year at fifteen and a half, and I and I drove to Martha's Vineyard, which was my second home, and, and and that's where I lived. But by then, by the time I left Chapel Hill, James had had gone to England and come back, um, and he stayed uh, in uh, the house of Chapel Hill. And he and I we pretty much lived together while he convalesced a, uh, a a polyp surgery he had on his vocal cords when he came back from England, and and we we grew closer as as you know adolescent adults and. And, uh, when I moved in to Martha's Vineyard, James moved to the vineyard too. He was living in Boston at the time, but he, he was coming down and staying with me on the vineyard and, and moved in with me actually. And, and with my now wife, Jeannie, we, we moved in together and, and, uh, you know, Jeannie and I've been here ever since, but James's career kinda of took hold at that point. I, I was I was more of a homebody. I, I, I enjoyed the work I was doing on Martha's Vineyard. I wanted to grow up and uh you know, at sixteen I had a girlfriend who who seemed to me like it was gonna be a long term commitment. I, I and I was very happy with it as I still am today with the same person. But I you know, uh until James went to Warner Brothers and and really his records sort of took off um, and you know he had pictures in the front of Time magazine and stuff I I guess uh, I I didn't consider being in the music business and then because the name and, and the and the, the Taylor talent was was such a sellable commodity there was a there were, I had quite a lot of offers to to sign with a couple of record companies and and I just didn't, I felt, you know, I was just completely comfortable and happy with what I was doing. I was a carpenter in those days, building houses and, and additions and working for other contractors. And I, I liked what I was doing. I enjoyed it. Uh, and, you know, this sort of, I don't say I was a hippie particularly, but, you know, it was a, it was a, a lifestyle of self uh, sustenance and, you know, you know, sort of self-reliance and, and, you know, I enjoyed it. So I, I really didn't ever consider the notion of going you know, on the road. I didn't want to go on the road, and I knew that was something I'd have to do, and I just didn't want to do that. So, so I, I had the opportunities, and I suppose I, I would my life would have been different if, had, had I done that, but I, I certainly don't regret you know, staying where I am.
0: So were you ever kind of traveling around with your siblings in, in terms of when they would go into a recording studio and, and hang out and kind of see how the whole process works?
1: Yeah, you know, I I did. I mean, I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, in the studio with these guys. I don't say a lot, but I mean, every time James did a project, pretty much every time, I I was either there uh, throwing some voices in it or I'd stop by and visit or something. You know, I didn't travel a lot, but the few times I did, it was pretty much to go to the studios in the city to uh, visit my siblings who were doing stuff. or, or go into the city to uh watch up you know a show, you know, that seems to invite me in to see a show at Madison Square Garden or or Kate wanted to uh see uh wanted me to come into a show she was doing at the, you know, uh one of the one of the clubs in the city. So you know, I was down there quite a bit and, and I you know, we I, I did I did a little bit of touring with uh with Kate's band when she was pregnant with one of her girls, she uh, she had to she couldn't keep the band on the road, so my brother Alex and I took that band out and that was sort of a New England uh uh tour of gigs that was pretty much uh, you know, um, uh night you know, nightclubs and, you know you know, booze places and stuff like that. Smoky, smoky places with you know, happy dancing people. You know, to, to maybe a thousand people, but mostly about 300. And uh, we had a pretty good time with that for about six or seven months. And then Kate got that band back and, and took it out. And, and I came back to my normal work, which was you know here on the vineyard So I, I stayed with that. But yeah, so we, I, I I've I've spent quite a lot of time in the studio. So you know, in, behind the board and, and and behind the glass. So you know, I, I I've got a pretty good. Uh, you know familiarity with it I, I was never awestruck by it particularly but uh i i i often you know in, you know it wasn't impossible that i wouldn't meet somebody that i was you know pretty impressed with every now and again
0: gotcha what was sort of the biggest difference that you could tell between um studios in california versus capricorn stuff in georgia
1: well that's uh that's interesting. I guess I've never really thought of it that way, but yeah, the, the 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 music scene in in California and the music scene in New York were different. Uh you know, just the urban, the, you know, just the intense, you know, closeness in, in the city and uh you know, the the energy all around there is uh you know, is amazing. And and you know, you go into a into Capitol Records or or you know, any of these uh studio, you know, these Label run studios in those days, you know, there were seven or eight studios on the fifth floor or the tenth floor, and, and you know, and, and they were just people coming and going all the time, you know. And, and in California, it was a little more laid back, you know, the weather's better, so you can, you know, you can hang around outside and stuff like that. And, and I didn't spend a lot of time in the studios in California. I was out there when uh, uh, Carly and both Carly and James were making records at the time, and we, we were about to have our first child, so we took a road trip, and well, we actually took a train trip. We got on a train in Boston and took the Southwest Limited out to LA, and we spent a couple of weeks out there with Carly and James, and while they were making their records, and and uh, mostly just vacationing because we knew we were going to be tied down with a child pretty soon. But but that's a um, you know that that scene out there is different, uh, and of course I was very familiar with the players in in the, at that time because these were guys that james had been playing with for a while and some of them you know like danny Korchbar had been, i've known danny since i was about five years old so i you know i'm very comfortable with that scene and those were the guys that had been you know in the road show with james for a while so you know that was a that was pretty easy going the uh, the capricorn thing um i was only in the studio there one time um uh, Phil Walden asked James and I to come down. We were in Chapel Hill then, and that's at the time when I was telling you before when he was convalescing. And Phil wanted to sign um, James, and and uh, Alex had been signed, and Livingston had been signed to Capricorn. So they asked us to come down. So James and I hopped in a car and we drove down to Macon. And uh, I remember at the time there was a Shriners convention going on at that town. I'd never seen anything like that before. With all these these. Drunk adults running around with fezes on and go karts and mini bikes. I'd, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. But aside from that, that studio was uh, was uh, real laid back too. Gaggs um, uh, uh, was in there. He he was about to do a record with Phil at the time, and uh, Otis Redding was was on that label and and was uh, I think Otis was still alive then. I just can't recall. He wasn't there, but. Yeah, but we went into that studio and and actually uh, mostly just did a tour of it. We didn't we didn't record. Um, uh, Alex sort of encouraged us to come down and because he wanted James on that record label too. And uh, and in fact, Phil asked me if I wanted to sign in. And I, I, you know, at that time, I, I hadn't even left Chapel Hill yet. And I was fifteen and a half, so I, I wouldn't I was not really up to it. But we we took a, a memorable tour of that studio. It was uh, right across the street from the office in a little back uh, commercial, rundown commercial neighborhood in Macon, and a lot of abandoned storefronts. And one of them uh, had a uh, had a studio in it across the street, and they turned the basement into an echo chamber, which uh, I remember going down into with James and we were down there singing uh, at the top for our lungs because of the echo that was going on in there. A lot of concrete posts holding up the upper f- floors of the building, and there were about six Small, you know, I shouldn't say small, but six of those big RCA um, uh, studio microphones hanging from the ceilings down there, and giant speakers in different locations around, so that they could they could blow the sound down into that cement space, and then we and and then record it again through the microphones and run that up to the the 16 track they had upstairs. That was pretty
0: interesting. I see. So you were on James's album, One Man Dog. Talk about that album a little bit.
1: Yeah, that was a great record uh, to do. Uh, James wanted to make a record in his own house on the vineyard, and uh, you know he just finished building this really lovely sort of uh, rough pine, you know, wide rough board sheathing house, uh, a kind of an eclectic thing, narrow and, and tall, um, nice big beams in it, post and beam kind of building. And a bunch of friends of mine had had, you know, been uh, contracted to build it for him, and it was done. And James wanted wanted to, to record this, so they set up a you know a studio, and he hadn't really quite moved into the building yet, so it was we were free to kind of put a lot of equipment in there and 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 record. So, and I I lived there, so I spent quite a lot of time. I didn't live in, in that. I mean, I lived on the vineyard, so I spent quite a lot of time. A lot of records being made there. And, you know, a lot of that record was written right on the spot while it was being made. And I know my siblings were in and out of there uh, singing too. But it was a lot of fun. We just, you know, it was we partied a lot doing that, and you know, just had a good time making that record.
0: And uh, then you would join Kate on uh, on her self-titled in in '78
1: yeah uh she did uh, sister kate out in in LA um with with peter asher in fact she's out there right now um uh uh in celebration of the 50th anniversary of sister kate uh, recording again with uh with what's now called the immediate family which is uh Danny Korchmar, Lee Clark Russ Conkel and uh Wadi have gotten together to to sort of do some recording and and they and Peter Asher is producing it, and they they got together and they're they're out there doing a 50th anniversary of Sister Kate. But yeah, I I did do. We went to Muscle Shoals uh, at the to, to the new studio that was um, in an old Coast Guard building on the uh, on uh, the river. Uh, what is the T- Tennessee River? I think it is. I can't remember now. I think it is Tennessee River on the you know between uh, you know Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, you know on, across the river, and we we did a record there for Kate. Um, Steve Miller Band was there recording in one of the studios there at that time, and and uh, we, you know, uh, Alex and I and James. We I don't think Livingston was in on that one, but we all went down there and spent quite a lot of time, uh, you know, on that record. I I in those days I I just didn't know what you know literally what royalty you know studio royalty I was hanging out with. Those guys were just great, you know, and and I come to come to uh, you know meet him later. Uh, in Capricorn you know, um, uh, you know, just doing a lot of different stuff, you know, around, but, but, you know, that, that was a time when I was just too naive to know how great the people
0: I was, you know, working with were. Right. You mentioned, uh, Peter Asher. What was sort of your first impression of, of him?
1: Well, you know, I, I loved his, uh, music he did with Peter and Gordon, you know, um, world without love was one of my favorite records when i was growing up and you know coming out of the you know that sort of folk stuff from the beatles era the early beatles stuff and so i i knew the music but i didn't know anything about the performer uh and so when i met peter it was and he wasn't a performer in those days you know when he started working uh with james he was you know he's producing the music and he's a piano player and a guitar player and he and he and he's got a great ear for all sorts of stuff. So he and he'd been working with James in England. So when he came over to America um, to uh, sort of seek his fortune, I guess uh, he and James hooked up well. And I knew him uh, uh, as as a, mostly as a friend, you know. And knowing him as a good friend of James's, and so you know, we all got along real well. And I, you know, I again, you know, I was kind of naive about about what powerhouses I was actually sort of hanging around with at the time, you know, and. And uh, of course, Peter was juggling three or four different acts at the time. Uh, Kate and Linda Ronstadt, and you know a lot of that that nice uh, folk rock stuff coming out of California. Peter was, you know, just you know well immersed in it, you know, as well as still having his his fingers in the in the Beatles efforts as well. So, you know, I I, I just enjoy. I thought he was kind of a tough, uh, you know he had a thick English accent, and I sort of thought he was a sort of a uh, uh, a curious creature with bright red hair and thick glasses but uh always always liked him a lot and didn't know how much respect i'd end up having for him over the years
0: right then uh volcano came out by jimmy buffett
1: yeah that was a that was a great record uh, and a lot of fun you know jimmy does these uh efforts and you know, back in the, back in those days, you know, he a lot of these songs he writes and, and wrote then were all sort of telling a story about one thing or another. And a lot of times it was it was a story about something that what it might have just happened last week or last year, you know, uh, some sort of bizarre thing that he got involved in one way or another. And and you know, so a lot of the stuff that Jimmy created, you know, he, he created the whole environment for it, you know, in in a way. Um and I known Jimmy a little bit, you know, seen him uh, at a couple of shows, uh, when he was either backstage or, or, or it was one of his shows. And, uh, but he wanted Alex and James and I to come down and sing backup on this volcano record he was doing in in Montserrat, you know, named after the, you know, the, what would become the, you know, the the deadly volcano there, but, and air studio Montserrat was there at the time. And, you know, that was, uh, um, a great, great facility, and Jimmy rented a big house for us to stay in, and uh, and we, you know, Fingers Taylor and myself were we hit it off pretty big, and we're driving around all the time, raising hell, and in, in, in you know, in Montserrat, we had a we had a good time there, and and we we did a nice record there. Those guys had pretty much done most of the track work on it when when I got there, and we stayed a, about a week and a half, I guess two weeks. Alex and James and I were singing can back up on that so some of the stuff was was either you know pushed back in the mix so far You could hardly hear it but you know I, when I hear the record on the radio over now and again i I can hear still hear the parts we were doing in there
0: that's fun and uh, he he did that remote too didn't he I'm not sure what you mean uh he he kind of did it outside of of sort of a studio didn't he do it out on the island
1: yeah, he well he did it on Montserrat. Yeah, yeah, okay. he did it. He he did it down there. Yeah, and everybody flew in. You know, but Air Studio Montserrat was there, and that was a pretty you know a pretty you know well equipped studio. It was, um, you know, a George Martin's studio, and he, uh, it had a it was a house, a big uh, sort of uh, what would you call it, you know, villa kind of house of that uh-huh. Caribbean style. It had a, had a big swimming pool and a second floor above it. I remember jumping off that the, porch of the, uh, the. The story above the pool into that into the pool below, which was just insane, as I look back on it. But you know, they dedicated a couple of the rooms in the building. There's a hallway down the back end of the building, and they dedicated a couple of rooms to uh, to sound studios in there. And, and you know when they they put it in a, in a 24-track, you know, tape machine, it was it was a full-time, you know, full-blown studio, no doubt about it.
0: Absolutely. Well, in. The early '80s, Livingston put up a couple of videos on his YouTube channel of the Taylor Family Singers on the Today Show. How did that come to be?
1: Yeah, I don't know. You know, over the years, there've been a number of efforts by some of my siblings to sort of get together and try to do some collaborative stuff, and I, and I guess that might have been the out, you know, the offshoot of one of them. We. I can't remember if it was before or after we had just done a uh, a, a, a small tour for a fundraiser for uh, the then candidate uh, ill-fated candidate John Anderson, who was running for president on a real liberal ticket that James was was uh, happy to uh, support. Um, and so we we all spent quite a lot of time on that tr- on that on that tour, um, I, and then we did a. Fundraiser in New York City for the South Street Seaport Museum, which was a is, a is a maritime you know history museum down you know on the very southern tip of Manhattan, and we all had a you know have a have a sort of a maritime connection, and and we were all happy as hell to do that show. We used uh, Kate's band for a lot of both of those appearances or all of those appearances. We used a lot of my sister Kate's band, um, you know, uh, uh, Nikki Huff and. Uh, Chris Clifton playing guitar just an excellent guitar player who spends a lot of his time uh, in Key West now playing you know he's been up he's been a house guitar player in Key West for many years now and uh some other great players, and, yeah, and as so, I don't know which one of us uh, was the one. It wasn't me, but I, I certainly have no had problems, you know, jumping aboard to spend a little time with my siblings, particularly making music. It was a, for me, it was sort of a change from my normal uh, island life here on the vineyard. So, um, you know, I, I was happy to go along with any of it, you know, and also I don't have, I and didn't have a, a lot of like economic investment in it i didn't I, I, my expectations weren't high because i i wasn't looking for a music career so anything i was doing there was really sort of a novelty for me and a chance to you know um, to take the opportunity to play with, and sing with some great players you know and and, and some great singers you know being my siblings. so i you know i just went along for the ride for the most part in those endeavors and uh you know it might have been that my sister or my my other siblings who weren't as successful as James were you know would see that as sort of a career Nancy move but i we never we never saw that as sort of I never saw it as self promotion we I just thought it was a, lot, a hell of a lot of fun to get today, together with them and, and play you know and and, and and produce something that an audience could enjoy
0: absolutely now when when you guys did that um, there's only a couple of videotapes out there of of the show um from the today show and one of them that i really like it's it's you guys all singing a verse and doing the sun the Wait. uh obviously a song the band did leave on helm and all of that
1: yeah that's right sure
0: and uh i think when alex every time alex comes on the screen and sings uh his verse i, I just get chills i mean with a voice like that you know it's like my god you know what i mean
1: yeah, he had a really strong voice, and and, um, and you know, I mean, he most of his career, he you know, he did a lot of, and he sort of made his own genre in a way. You know, he had this sort of macabre thing he was doing with the, burn down the cornfield, and you know, in dinner time, and and also later in this, in some of the Sanford Studio stuff he did, you know, the uh, the Kingsnake Studio he did, but um, it, uh, but in spite of that incredibly robust, you know, you know, hulking chest derived voice uh, uh you know he was also a great balladeer you know a lot of he did a lot of recording that never ended up on you know on the racks uh that you know that was 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 ballady stuff and and he was great at that as well you know it just just was an incredible talent but yeah when you know when Alex came up to the microphone he, he he it was different and he put everything he had into it
0: and and you can certainly tell as as being a part of the audience and and even as watching So, nice memory. oh yeah. So, did the five of you always sing together before you know you guys did a couple of TV appearances?
1: No, you know, most of that stuff was sort of spontaneous. We, you know, when we were younger, when the Beatles came out with Rubber Soul, they were they were uh, four of us living at home at, at one period of time. There, my brother Alex had already moved down to Bristle Beach, North Carolina, but but um, we um, I we we used, because that 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 rubber soul album had a you know it was sort of a, uh, a, a, a an evolution for the beatles and there was a lot of uh you know there was a lot of four and five part harmonies in that uh record you know nowhere man and uh, uh if i needed someone uh, you know those were songs that that we were we jumped on those like crazy to to emulate those those harmonies they were doing and make them good or make them better and we were always astounded at how easily and how how well, our voices, uh, you know, uh, meshed, uh, you know, singing, singing the harmonics to to whatever melody line was there, and and how well the the voices blended in in harmony. So, you know, that was we did quite a lot of sing-alongs with that particular record, and some other stuff too. Like, you know, some uh, you know singing along with some of the more R and B stuff that, Anita Turner did, and and Inez Fox, and and. You know some of those coasters records and you know and the drifters, but uh, for the most part, you know we didn't really do a lot. You know as precursors to those shows, we we did some rehearsal for sure. But but uh, like I say, we were all born singers, and if, as long as we knew the lyrics or and the melody line, we were pretty well set to go any time. And and I think I think that's still the case to tell you the
0: truth. I see. Then in uh, 1986, you guys made it on uh, MSNBC for a Christmas uh special did a couple of Christmas songs
1: yeah that was that was Livingston that put that together. I remember that um uh, he he um he thought that would be a good idea and I think somebody in the one of the producers on the show had had asked him about that and uh and he said, uh, yeah, yeah, let's do it and he he got around to all of us and I think everybody knows how beautiful it is to be in New York City at Christmas time, so we all took took the bait basically and and went down and did that it that was fun too that was and again we didn't really rehearse for any of that stuff we just just went in there and did it yeah i think i I, I probably had a cheat sheet or a or i was or holding a piece of paper (laughs) that had the lyrics on it. i don't know
0: yeah then a few years after that you would be down with bob greenlee at king snake records and you would be working on your own project called it's up to you what is the backstory behind that album?
1: Yeah, well, you know, Alex had done a couple of records there already, and uh, the, the just the 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 record previous to mine, um, the last one that Alex did there, previous to mine, uh, James and I went down there and sang some background on it. Um, I can't remember the tunes now, but if I listen to the record, I get it in a minute. Um, never have been very good at remembering the titles of these songs we do or, or we listen to, and I, uh, but and, and Bob had asked me then if I wanted to come down and do a record, and I said, well, gee, Bob, I, you know, I just don't know what I might do. Uh, uh, he said, well, go home and you know think up some tunes, and and let's stay in touch, and maybe we can we can put something together, you know, because he had, you know, Bob Greenlee was a was just the, the, just a consummate fan of 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 R&B, but, but blues mostly. He grew up there in the Daytona beach area and he grew up in Sanford where that studio is or was. And, uh, and he played, uh, he, he was a bass player and a saxophone player and he played, you know, in all those sort of, uh, 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 beach music, uh, you know, establishments up and down the, the beach at Daytona for years. He, he with the Allman brothers. And I mean, those guys, you know, that's, that was their mainstay in high school and stuff was, was playing for the Wahoo weekends around around Daytona and New Smyrna and you know for a little further south, but but for the most part, uh, and, and so he just had this you know real uh, you know big interest in supporting that that music of that area, and and he got some just incredibly talented mostly blues players into that place, and they were they'd walk they'd walk in there after a gig at some you know, some beer palace somewhere at two o'clock in the morning and lay down three tracks. You know, when I, I'd come in the studio the next day, 11 o'clock in the morning and there was a whole new, you know, uh, you know, take on the, you know, they laid down tracks of horn sections, guitars, you know, piano sections, drum, you know, just all kinds of stuff that, you know, just marvelous to hear. And, and these guys were doing it for, you know, they're just doing it for the love of the music. And, and uh, so when I went down there and did that, we, you know, we we put that record together for for you know very very little money, and then um, it was really just we what we were trying to do really was he said just come up with some cover tunes, some songs you're familiar with, then you feel easy about singing, and and we'll we'll put them down, and then we'll just go see if we can find a a, a production uh, a budget uh, from some record company, and we'll and we'll we'll do something you know better here, you know we'll do something that's sort of uh, got you you more in mind for uh, for the production side of it, so. You know, I had a couple of tunes that I, you know, that it's up to you. That was that a, a song I think uh, Livingston or James suggested I do. And, um, you know, I was asking around to these guys what they thought I should sing. And and I took a, I think I took three or four songs down there that I'd either known for years or got familiar with. And then the players that were there had already, you know, they, they had some songs in mind too as we were getting through these, uh, laying down the, you know, the rhythm tracks and stuff and the and the working vocal tracks. We, those guys were... um they were coming in with their own songs that that you know that there were some of them been sung four times in that same studio by different players coming through there but some of them were brandy new that had never been sung before and and you know I, so we came up with this sort of eclectic mix of cover tunes and 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 stuff that was some of it written right there on the floor while we were there and then uh and and we farmed it out to see if anybody took an interest in it and and nobody bit. Now we didn't get one one call back from anybody. And Livingston said, "Well, send it over to uh, to uh, Sony Records in in Japan. Um, it's called Village Green. They they're doing a lot of uh, you know sort of folk rock stuff over there. And send it over. to See what they 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 have published my albums over there and 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 paid me for uh, for putting up my records out over in Japan. So we called them up and and they. They they bought it as a as a full blown record. They they didn't think it was a demo. They bought it as the record, and they had me take it out to San Francisco and mix it out a little bit uh, more. And, I, we, and it lost a lot of the garage band feel to it because of that sort of sophisticated mix we put uh, to it, and, and a couple more tracks we put on it. But uh, and I took that record up to Boston uh, with Bob and 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 a couple of specialized microphones that he had. These real old classic uh, studio mics that he he thought. I agree. I had, you know, lent a different quality to the vocal tracks, and took those mics, and and we went into the studio in Boston with Kate and Liv and Alex and and James, and we laid down some background tracks. What they were, they were just very generous to do for me on that record. And then, you know, like I say, uh, uh, Village Green uh, picked it up, and this this subsidiary of Sony over there, and they paid us a, a lot of money for it. Uh, and and we at that point we were, we had a great opportunity to actually you know share the wealth we, we we divvied all that money up to all those players who really had never expected to get any money out of it really and that was you know one of the great things about that record was the was being able to you know spread that uh, that that purchase money out you know that came from that record company we we loved that and that was that was good that it made Bob very happy because he these guys have been working for him for, for peanuts for years you know.
0: Absolutely, one of the uh, cool people that you have on there is Pete Carr, obviously session player from the Macon, Georgia area. And how did he get to be on that album?
1: Yeah, Pete, he he's just you know I hadn't seen him in in fifteen years. I guess he he uh, he he did he played on Livingston's records and Alex's records down at Capricorn. And and then when uh, uh, what's this guy's name? The producer, I can't remember his name now. Uh, Sandlin, uh, Johnny Sandlin, I think it is. He moved over to Macon to the new studio at the Coast Guard Building there, and Pete came along, and so I saw him again. Uh, I didn't I didn't really uh, fraternize with him much, but I I was I was in this you know in the sound room you know behind the glass uh, listening to him play his guitar tracks on some of Kate's work, which was phenomenal. And then. You know, God, what was it, ten or twelve years later? Here I am, you know, in at Kingsnake, and you know he uh, he's Bob knew him, and and he lived in the area. And Bob said, "Why don't you come over in the?" And I think he drove down from Gainesville or something. I can't remember exactly where he was living at the time. And uh, he said, "Why don't you come down and and put a little something on this record for Huey?" And 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 you know Pete remembered me and and he just came down and and just laid these you know incredible pieces on there and again you know I I never really knew what you know what an incredible contributor he had been to so much great music I mean I knew him and I, I knew he'd done a lot of Atlantic Session work and I knew he'd done a lot of work with live and, and alex kind of make it but you know it's it's only today you know that i can look back and really appreciate just the incredible talent he was and and you know and and you know how generous he was to offer to this record
0: absolutely and then another notable one that is on your album is brian bassett who was the guitar player for wild cherry that did uh play that funky music he did guitar on your album
1: yeah, he did, and what a great guy too. And again, you know, they were playing it up in an old opera house up in in Stanford, you know, uh, that a friend of mine owned, and, uh, he, and they'd come over after after uh, we were done with the, you know the vocal tracks of the day, and and they spent three or four hours in there, you know, in the wee wee hours doing uh, that work. Yeah, he was with that. What's the name of that other? I think it was called Foghorn or something like that. Uh, fog track. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, Brian's great. He'd done, he'd done a lot of work on Alex's records that the, the ones Alex had done previously at Kingsnake and I'd met him down there previous to that in, in doing that one. Another great guitar player was Ernie Lancaster on that record. Uh, he's passed now but just a phenomenal blues guitar player and, and, uh, and of course, uh, uh, Lucky Peterson. Uh, he, he lucky, uh, to the best of my knowledge, that was the first time Lucky Peterson ever played guitar uh, uh, on a record, certainly. But maybe the first time he ever played guitar was on that record of mine. He came in to do some uh, some piano tracks for us, and uh, and he he just come in. He'd been down doing a uh, you know a, a rum shop tour in Louisiana, and it, they came in a in a camper up and parked in the driveway at Kingsnake and and he came in and he picked up somebody's guitar and started playing and it. it was just you know he was just a, he, you know he, he was a total musical you know genius as a kid he was on the Johnny Carson show I think he was seven years old on the Johnny Carson show playing the piano and he he was just absolutely phenomenal too
0: and uh, then of course you got Ace Morland who contributed his song Ain't Nothing But A Party to your album
1: yeah that was a great one Ace so great, and oh man, oh man, and yeah, he did that. Uh, he did that for us, and Alex wanted to sing on that something awful, which he did. You know, he, he, yeah, he was pretty sick those days. Uh, you know, with the booze and stuff. But Alex did that that first on there, which was really great. You know, he, it's funny how you look at these tunes, and and he, you know, I interpreted them you know, these ones that I heard for the first time, some of them I just interpreted completely wrong, and then somebody come in there and lay a lick on it or, or like Alex, put a vocal thing on it, and I said, oh, oh, oh I get it now. I see what this is supposed to be, you know. And so, yeah, that was a great... Ace did a great job with that one. Yeah, sure
0: did. Yeah, Ace is, uh, is such a great guitar player, and certainly was, as he left us in 2003, but, you know, he, he learned all his stuff from... Steve and Cassie Gaines, where he was growing up in Miami, Oklahoma. And uh, yeah, that's kind of such an interesting story. But uh, one of the songs I want to point out on your album is called Tough Enough. And that's the one that I know for sure has Pete Carr. You you can tell by listening to it. You uh, bet. Who, who wrote that song? Oh, I, that's probably one of my favorites on there.
1: Yeah, you know, I like that song too. I, I you know, and I, I've sung it a couple of times since then, and you know, at, at some get-togethers and at some some gigs around, but not not much. Uh, um, um, I can't remember to tell you the truth offhand. I'm sorry to say. I, I wish you, if I'd, I'd done a little research on it, I could have come up with that. I think I think that was a Santana covered that tune, and I don't know who sang it.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. I think it might have been on a Santana record. I don't know why that comes to mind, but but uh, yeah, that 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 song has got a great uh, a lilt to it, and and Pete just you know that piece he puts down in there, and the the way he wraps up that solo in that song is just just unbelievable. Really, we we were all slack jawed when he got done laying that tasty piece together. It took him one take, and he did it.
0: Wow, know? that was one take.
1: Yeah, he he played a couple of you know he fiddled with it a little bit for about a half an hour, I'd say. You know, and I think he'd been in the in the you know, in the control room while we were doing some of the work on it and uh and and he just sat down there and blew that thing out like it was you know, it came right straight from his heart.
0: Oh yeah. And then uh another highlight for me is Brick by Brick, which is a uh, Dr. Hector and Groove Injector's son, Drew Lumbar. Geez,
1: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I haven't heard that name in a while either. Yeah um I think Bob had something to do with writing that song Bob Greenlee and uh and and I but I do know it was one of his favorites and and pretty much every person that came in the studio there to record for him he forced them to do it. Um and uh, he asked me to do it. Um now and it is that's my wife's favorite song, you know, because it sort of speaks to, you know, the the house we built and, and, you know, and the life we built together and stuff. She's sort of like that. I, you know, I, I, I get a, I, I get a little bit antsy when I listen to that record, because a lot of it sounds sort of Barry Mandelow-esque, you know, I... <laughs> You know, I, I, you know, I don't know what what I was hearing in my own head, and you know that's often the case if you don't hear enough of your own voice, you know, coming back at you through the speakers, you just you don't know, and and you know Bob wasn't one to push me around, and you know you know sort of tell me you know don't you sing it a little bit different, to put it a little more of this in it and that in it, so a lot of the stuff sort of surprised me a little bit when I heard when it came out the other end, sort of sounds so you know sort of you know polished or or you know you know sort of Las Vegasy kind of my vocals, not the not the stuff these boys were laying down, but brick by brick we did that. We were hoping um, that Kate, my sister Kate, was going to sing. Uh, we'd sing that as a duet, and uh, and but when we sent Kate the uh, the demo, uh, you know, the oh, a mix of the of the record, she decided she wanted to do um, uh, uh, what's the name of that song. She she did end up doing it with me. Uh, 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 gosh, I'm um, my uh, real it's good a real good, sign and yeah it? real good yeah, real good sign yeah she uh, she wanted to do that one with me, so we um we did it, it it's it's not really in her key, um so because we'd already laid it all out and everything done it in those days you couldn't you couldn't transpose electronically and or we wouldn't have wanted to anyway, but um so she it was a little bit of an uphill climb for her to do it, but because brick by brick we had um uh, we we knew the song. Had been done as a duet before, um, and uh, and so we, we we had it keyed so Kate could sing along with it a little bit, but she ended up not wanting to do that one. So we we did the other one, which came out great actually. In fact, I saw she had it on a Facebook page the other day, um, saying guys, just going through some stuff, and and I, I found this record that I did with my brother Hugh, and here it is So she put it out on Facebook, and I I listened to a few bars of it, and I said, gee, that that you know in retrospect that wasn't too bad after all.
0: There you go. well hugh i first discovered you on a Keensnake snake sampler that's called hurricane florida blues guitar and and it features your brother alex on the record it's got 19 songs and you know it's got you know the who's who of of the Keensnake snake label at the time and they have one of your songs on there and it's tough enough with p Carr, obviously Yep. And and that's that's when I kind of went, well, who's this Hugh Taylor? And I'm and, and the insert in, in the CD uh, talks about, you know, you're the younger brother of James and Alex is obviously both of them have done a little bit there and. That great duet on on one of Alex's CDs, "He Don't Love You." That's that's a great song, a great version. Of yeah, it, right?
1: that is. That, that's a song that they sang together in, in 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 a band in Chapel Hill when they were kids.
0: Oh, really? Um,
1: yeah, the Corsairs was the name of that band, and they played that together. Uh, you know, that was a you know real sort of beach music frat house uh, staple, and and uh, and I I I know. Um, James, I think James might have suggested they do that together when Alex asked him if he'd come down and do a do a little background with him. Yeah, yeah, that that was great. I get chills when I think about that record. That was that was a good one. Yeah, I I never knew about that anthology or that sampler, as you speak uh, of. I, I but uh, but I'm delighted they put uh, uh, Tough Enough on there.
0: Yeah, came out in uh came out in ninety nine and the uh the little write up inside about you says younger brother to Alex and James tackles the blues with guitar by muscle shoals legend Pete Carr.
1: That <laughs> does make me sound pretty grandiose, doesn't it? Oh
0: yeah. Sure, yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah that's so, great. You yeah, know, well, that was that was a, a, an absolute treat to play with Pete.
0: Yeah, and, and your album came out in nineteen ninety, right?
1: gosh you know what i can't remember i guess it was just about then yeah we were we were just getting started with this in business we got here now so yeah but yeah i guess so
0: yeah about three years after that your your family would have a a major tragedy or a major loss or however you want to look at it with alex
1: that yeah, was that was you know it wasn't unexpected but it was you know it was devastating he tried like hell to sober up and get get clean and stuff over you know over many efforts to get himself into a you know a clean. in fact he was in, he was signed up to go to a to a you know dry out place uh, i think the next day the day they found him Wow. Know, the morning they found him he just couldn't shake it uh, you know he um you know he, you know the life that he built for himself was basically sort of it's morphed into being sort of engineered around this dependency on alcohol and you know that they, they, that dependency business and you know and breaking yourself of it was sort of a fledgling thing there was a lot of sort of residual uh, sort of old school treatment stuff still in play at the time it's a it's a completely different world now and that that uh, well, we just you know we just hoped and prayed he'd come over the other side and you know get over the hump and be able to get out of that but it just um, you know, he, he just didn't do it and also he he had a he had heart fibrillations all his life and I you know we everyone would would agree that it was you know the combination of you know of, of you know poor nutrition and and excessive alcohol content but but that his heart g- gave out and you know in the end and technically that's what killed him you know yeah. And of course, Bob. You know, he was at the studio. He was at Greenwich, and Bob was devastated. You know, when that when that came about, and I was in the Bahamas. I was in uh, Nevis. I was sailing a boat down there, and I and I was on my way north uh, with the boat to go up to the Bahamas to pick up somebody. And and um, and uh, when I got to St. Thomas to pick up uh, uh, some friends that were coming aboard for the trip up the Bahamas, uh, I I I I found out that Alex. Had passed there, and and I had about a four-day run to get over to Turks and Caicos with this boat. So I we jumped over to Turks and Caicos, and, and I I flew home from there. And uh, uh, some friends of mine stayed on the boat to kept that, that sailed across from St. Thomas with us. And we did the memorial service for Alex and everything, which was really excellent. It was it was a great service, and, and you know, a lot, lots of great tributes and memories and stuff like that. And then uh, actually, it was uh, Jimmy Buffett who actually flew flew me back down to Turks and Caicos in his uh, little um, you know uh, one of his rocket sled airplanes, and he took me and my brother in law back down there. You know, and we sailed the boat back up to the Vineyard from there. But
0: uh, yeah, that was a, that was
1: a hard time for everybody, and you know. Miss your water till a well runs dry, so to speak, and, and it, it, that's that's the way it was. I still miss it terribly. I'm sure as as anybody can understand who's lost a sibling.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, you mentioned around this time you and your wife were starting the Outermost Inn. What's yep. uh, what's what's the story behind the Outermost Inn?
1: Well, you know we. I built this house here, when I was nineteen and and we you know we I didn't have a hell of a lot of money in the day and and James actually lent me the money to build it and then when I turned twenty one I was able to get a mortgage, and I paid him back the, the fourteen grand he lent me and and uh and I got a little more to finish the place and we we lived in this house for quite a while and and, and then uh Jeannie my wife inherited a little uh, one room no electricity, no running water camp down on the beach about three miles east of us here and so we'd go down there in the summers and rent this house uh, um, out to people who wanted to come and spend time on the vineyard in fact uh, uh, jimmy and, and janie buffett were were um were repeating repeating uh renters of ours for for a number of years we had a lot of fun with those folks up here at the house and just just the nicest nicest bunch of people in and out of here with those guys here, and, but we one year we were looking at it back in 88 I think it was, and we were looking around and the place needed a lot of work, and well, I didn't have the money to put it in to, to make it classy enough for these, you know, the, the bar is getting raised all the time on how how much money people pay for a house if it's if it's kind of, still looks like a hippie house so I, you know, painted plywood floors and the like, so I, I come up with this idea of turning it into an inn and and, and I took it to the bank and The bank uh, with a performer, and the bank said, "Yeah, yeah, we'll lend you the money to do that." And and of course, I'm still paying a mortgage today. But they, but they, uh, they gave me the money, and I spent about 18 months tearing the whole place apart and putting it back together again to make it a a seven-room inn and a a, a bit of a restaurant below it. And uh, that's that's, it. Just sort of became uh, something we really enjoyed doing. My wife and I working together every day. You know, we're we're best friends anyway, so we got along real good. and, And our kids were growing up and getting out of the house at that point so you know they they were fine my daughter works here now with us and my son manages a lot of this property around us and so it's 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 been a really good run we're you know we we're, we're very glad we did it and it's been a it's been a popular thing with with the community and and the touring public that comes in here so yeah we're we're, we're lucky to have it when we started livingston gave us a mailing list from his his music fans and that was the, that was our, we sent I asked him if I wrote a letter, would he approve it? And then, uh, and then, uh, let me send a brochure out with the letter to all his mailing lists. And, and his wife at the time, Maggie gave me the list and we, we sent that out to, well, maybe 400 people, I guess it was. I I just barely had the money to pay for the stamps and, and, uh, and we got a we, we started to fill the place up with those people. And next thing you know, we're just, uh, we got returned guests all the time. And, and it's been like that for the last 30 years.
0: Wow. Well that's <laughs> certainly a good thing for you. Yes, it's been a great great run, it really has. And uh and you you got a restaurant there and you you get uh a couple of famous chefs that have have kind of worked there, haven't you?
1: Well, you know, our chefs move on to some some, you know, uh, some, to uh, you know, bigger and better uh, sometimes, bigger and better things. Uh, uh, uh I haven't had any I mean, we've had some we've had some famous chefs come in here and eat. That's for sure. And uh, and and the chef we have now, he's he's been on the Today Show a time or two. And and uh, and we've yeah. But I, nobody comes to mind. It's like a you know like a uh, you know, a Prudhomme or any of those uh, you know uh, those kind of uh, that famous chefs. But all of them have been superior. You know, start. Starting out, uh, you know, lots of times starting out really young and 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 improving and getting better and better as time goes on. They're they're all crowd pleasers. It seems to me we we had a really great chef in here named Martin Saylor who who ended up at the Hay Ashbury and across you know, in the White House in Washington D.C. He had a great run there too after that. So um, our, our our guys uh, they do tend to go on to bigger and better things uh, or or their own endeavors after they after they leave here.
0: There's uh, nothing wrong with that. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, it's it's worked out great, and it's a it's a hard thing to do to keep a chef because you know they they have ambitions, and this you know you know to a certain extent, a place like this is you know if, for a youngster is it, you know I guess it feels a little claustrophobic that you might get stuck here, and so you know we we you know we we go through a few. Sometimes we'll have a chef every two years, and sometimes we'll have one in the last five or six years. So. And eight or nine sometimes, so it's 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 always a good thing. And we we like a civil kitchen, and a and a civility is the is the number key operating word around here. And so there's none of that sort of tantrum type stuff that goes on. So we're all a big family. We have to live in this building ourselves, so we want everybody to be happy.
0: Right. What is it about Martha's Vineyard for your whole family that you everybody's just kind of been drawn to it?
1: Well, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that started out, I guess, with our folks. You know, they came down here, like I said, early in the '40s, and uh, and uh, when they had a few minutes. And then in the summertime, when we did move to North Carolina, my mother was, you know, she thought the, you know, the the South was the cultural desert of the world, and and uh, she wanted to come back up to New England, and um, and so we um, we we were familiar with with the vineyard my mom and dad were and so she she pressed to come to the vineyard because he knew it was a safe place for young kids and, you know to explore and sort of and as i say sort of operate in the in the architecture of the upbringing that they had you know really sort of cultivated for us down there in the you know in chapel hill so we came up here summers my father got would only get a month off the month of august off so she'd load us all in the station wagon and up we'd come we and you know for years uh, they rented a house with no electricity and and only cold water piped in from a from a house next door. And we we slept in, you know, bunk beds that came out of a naval ship and army sur- uh, navy surplus and and, you know, we were free to do whatever we wanted around here. You could get in the, you could walk to the end of the driveway and stick your thumb out and get a ride with somebody, go anywhere on Martha's Vineyard you wanted a very safe place, you know, and from the age of, you know, five or six years old I could stick my thumb out and pretty much any time I get a ride it was somebody who knew who, who I was. Whether I knew who they were or not, but and we were in boats at a very early age, so we all were very very comfortable on the way vineyard and and as a sort of a and and, the, and Chapel Hill really had become you know sort of a not the town itself but our but our residents down there we'd all outgrown that and my mom had sold the place so you know there wasn't really a, a a drive to return there. And the vineyard, you know, is a magnet for lots of people for all different kinds of reasons. But we just all felt comfortable here. And, and, and I was the first one to move here and sort of thinking I was moving away from my sort of screwed up family. And uh, uh, you know, it's mostly speaking about my mother and father's uh, embattled you know scenario. But, but uh, yeah, before I knew it, James had moved in and then my brother, Alex, moved down. And then my Sister Kate moved down, and then my brother Livingston moved down, and here we all were. And, and you know, in those days, we, we certainly welcomed each other's closeness and proximity. You know, it was, it's, it was a great thing, and it's still a great thing like that.
0: For sure. What is the biggest thing you've learned from each of your siblings?
1: Well, you know, some of it's, uh, you know, uh, it's, i guess a lot of it's got to do with just my own shortcomings you know and 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 what some of the things they excel at you know in personality and generosity and uh, compassion and just all the things that that make those people good people they you know it it it, the bar is high you know so you have to you know you, you learn a lot when you and they're all older siblings than me, and I've looked at them that way all my life really you know since I was a kid i've always really really looked up to all of them for one reason or another um but you know I guess you know it's a it's a it's a conglomerate sort of feeling i don't have a i don't have a particular thing i mean of course i i just you know absolutely you know love James's music and admire his you know his you know enormous depth of talent and Livingston's incredible work ethic and his, you know, his, his, you know, forthright, you know, commitment to his job and his profession, and my sister's tenacity and, you know, I mean, I, just the way these people handle their their their, their lives, I mean, it, it's it's really quite remarkable. So, if nothing else, they they they've forced me to look at my own shortcomings and try to try to make myself better, you know
0: right with the uh with the virus thing going around what what have they been up to has everyone been fine
1: yeah everybody's well um you know but cautious there's no doubt about that yeah. um my you know it's 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 the vineyard Martha's Vineyard is an easy place to, to uh to uh you know quarantine or or, or stay safe I mean the, the you know the incidence of, of contagion contagiousness and 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 people contracting the disease here is pretty pretty low by the population and so it's pretty easy we all wear masks all the time and in my business I mean we you know we run probably five, six, eight thousand six eight thousand people a summer through here and we were very reluctant to do that this year not knowing you know what how we'd be exposed but you know uh, as long as we as long as our staff is comfortable with what, with our precautions and everything, uh, we felt as though we could be too. And, and we felt that that was also the good, good gauge for how our, uh, how our, our patrons would, would be, uh, at what comfort level we could offer them. So, you know, uh, everybody wears masks and everybody's pretty conscious. You know, of course, in the restaurant business, we wash our hands constantly anyway, but my, you know, my sister Kate, she she uh, was here on the vineyard all last winter, and she, and and with a very tight circle of friends. Uh, um, Livingston, he's been getting out and about a little bit more, but he's pretty he's pretty conscientious about, about safeguarding everything and staying in the distances and stuff. And and, but he hasn't been able to work. Uh, you know, he's worked. I uh, I think he said he's worked about four gigs. You know, since March. I mean, he's wow. he's basically been out of work and james also uh, you know james went out to go ski and uh, with his kids in montana they rented a house out there and and uh, with his younger uh, uh twin boys and his wife and they they went out there and uh, and they stayed they didn't they didn't leave there they you know they arranged to stay in that building because nobody else was going to come in after that and and they stayed there right up until june and then they uh they came back uh, back east here and you know uh, They've been staying pretty, pretty, you know, um, close to the vest there, also. And, and of course, James couldn't work either. I mean, he's he's done a few uh, fundraising things and a couple of, uh, of um, you know, deals to, uh, you know, uh, I think he's been out there a little bit to promote some of his, you know, that Amazon um, um, memoir thing he's got going on there. But for the most part, he's he's been out of work too. I think you know the music business has really been hit hard, like like all of these entertainments. Scenarios. It's just been a tough time.
0: Without a doubt. Well, Hugh, how can folks get more information about the Outermost Inn?
1: Well, I guess the best thing to do is just give us a call. We have a website, um, you know, outermostinn.com and on that is a telephone number. We answer the phone pretty much 24 7 here. You know, uh, we're a little, little less. Fastidious with it on the, when we close up, which we're clo- we're seasonally closed now. We couldn't allow, um, we couldn't we couldn't find a way to offer uh, what you call a, you know enough separation and an adequate uh, amounts of patrons to actually pay to keep the kitchen open. You know we we just very uh, gun shy about sh- sh- closing the windows and turning the heat on and 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 asking people to come in and eat inside. So we closed about two weeks ago and. And uh, and so all the all the questions we're fielding now on the telephone are basically just uh, for future uh, reservations and just asking about the status of our business and what we're going to do. So we we don't anticipate opening until sometime you know on the other side of this thing or, or or in good weather, which won't be till June of next year. So you know, like everybody else, we're looking for a vaccine and and, and ways to you know make it work and keep our patrons comfortable. Um, but uh, yeah, that's we've got an email address on that website too. That's kind of cluttered up with a lot of junk. So we we just encourage people to call us if they want if they got any questions.
0: Okay, so get on your website or just Google and and call you.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the way to do it. Yep, the website's fairly thorough. We've uh, we've streamlined it a little bit, uh, but it's uh, but uh, there's still quite a lot of information on that website and on the Facebook page and uh, Instagram page. Yep. Cool. <laughs> I don't know how to use the damn
0: thing. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, Hugh, I, I must say, it has been a real treat to have you on and to get some of these stories.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, Logan. Thanks for thinking of me, and you know, I'm happy to chat with you. It's, 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 you're a very easy fellow to, to uh, unfold to.
0: Well, there you have it, everyone. That is my interview with Hugh Taylor. I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, be sure to tell the world and share with your friends and let them know about the goodies that you've been listening to. Until next time, I'm Logan. You're listening to LV's Music Corner. Be humble and don't stumble.